Hello there, welcome to May Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're talking about week four. Yes, week quattro of Dana White Contender Series. It's five bouts every Tuesday evening, by the way, guys. This is played on what, ESPN, ESPN Plus. The main event for week four is gonna feature a bout between the English fighter, Thomas Paul, versus Esteban Robovix from Argentina. Robovix is 10-0 undefeated. The card will open up with a bout featuring Nazim Sadyakov versus Ahmad Sahil Hassanzada. <laughs> Did the best I could there. Anyway, guys, we're going to go over each fight one fight at a time. If you were here last week, you know that we got to be fight right. Every single fighter who won was the favorite. I mean, come on. It wasn't rocket science to pick those. And so we did make a few bucks last week. Nothing too crazy. I think, what, three or four units? If you go down below in the description, down below here, you're going to see a free video library. That's a library with links of these fighters and their prior fights to save you some time if you want to watch some film. With all that said, ladies and gentlemen, let's jump into it with the first fight in the card. Here we go. The card opens up with a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between Nazim Zadyakov and Ahmed Zuhali Hazanzada. I'm going to do the best I can with these names. I like to pronounce them correctly. I'm going to stick to just calling him Ahmad, if we don't mind moving forward. Ahmad's 8-1 overall, hailing from Afghanistan, 4-1 in his last five fights, 26 years young, 6'1 in height with a 74-inch reach. He trades out of International Hasharafu Federation. As for Nazim Sadyakov, 6-1 overall, based out of Brooklyn, New York, 28 years old, no height and reach number on him. Having watched him fight, I do not believe he's 6' foot or 6'1". Six I'm going to give the height advantage and reach advantage to Hassan Zada, who usually has that in his matchups. When you watch him fight, he's a very long lean fighter. So I imagine we're going to have about a two to three inch height advantage for the Afghanistan fighter and the same thing with the reach. As for the gym that Nazim trains out of, he's out of Longo and Wyman MMA. You've got two fighters with seven fights, nine fights respectively, have both fought in decent promotions, lower level, yes. What scares me about these money lines, you come out here and you have two fighters who are about the same and have limited experience, yet one guy's minus 270. Like, where's the value there? We, we haven't seen much from these guys. One's 28, one's 26. That is a little bit disappointing. You're going to have to take a look at these dogs because the reality is even though last week every favorite won, the week before, I believe there was a, yeah, Ross lost, right? Shannon Ross lost, and he was a, a lot of people had him. Heck, I even had him in some parlays, and I paid the price. Could Ahmad Hassanzada win this fight? Yeah, I mean, he's 8-1 for a reason. He's a pretty decent fighter. He's nasty off his back, though he needs to get up off the ground. Sometimes he spends too much time on his back. I guess what I'm saying to you is don't expect week four to be like week three. Now, looking at the numbers on Tapology, it appears that Sadyakov is the one getting the most votes with 63% to be exact, 37% coming in for Hassan Zada. Yeah, I like Sadyakov too, but I want to really underline this and say again, the money line is, is almost forcing you to take a good look at the dog because they are so young with limited experience. Now, as for Nazim, we mentioned before, based out of Brooklyn, had a 4-0 amateur career. He went professional in 2018, so been a pro for about four years. He fought in Fury FC and CFC, CFFC, excuse me. He's currently on a six-fight winning streak. He fought Joe Borshig, 2022, this year. Joe Borshig had no chance in that fight. He goes down from the first punch, more or less, that he gets hit with. And it's a very basic punch. You can see Nazim is like, that's it? <laughs> this guy's done? Okay. Borshik is 6-5 and five overall. The six wins he's got, I should look him up. But those six people that he beat, they should never, ever even tell someone that they fought mixed martial arts. Juan Carlos Leon, that was the fight before Joe Borshik. 2021, a round three TKO win. A better fight because you get to see more from him. You know, you get to see basically the way that, you know, he operates under some pressure. Now, Leon was a grappler heavy guy, just pushing him against the fence, making it ugly, a bit annoying. You did see Nazim defend takedowns very well. Eventually, Nazim wears down 
Juan Carlos Leon because he defended the takedowns. And in the last round of that fight, round three, as Juan Carlos is going for a takedown, he goes in and shoots, and Nazim reverses position, gets on top, and then from there, lays some ground and pound and pulls off a rear naked choke. Now, what do I like about Nazim Sadyakov? He fights out of a southpaw stance. That's always an adjustment for whoever he's fighting against. A very high finish rate. He's had five finishes in his six wins. Very good takedown defense. Again, if you watch the fight against Juan Carlos Leon, you'll see that on display. He's an active fighter. This will be his second fight this year, and he fought twice last year. He likes to be the one that sets the pace and pressure. He wants to lead the dance. Now, what are my concerns for Sajikov? He's faced a lot of very limited fighters, just limited experience. Both of them have. So it's not a criticism unique to him. But the reality is when you have that, now we have those blind spots. I wish we had one more signature fight on his tapology that I could say, oh, here's the guy he fought. And quite frankly, even this fight will not necessarily meet that benchmark because he's fighting a guy who's also very inexperienced that we don't know much about. And my last critique would be, has he been tested in terms of being injured? being cracked, being hurt, being cut. I haven't seen that. Now, as for Ahmad Hassanzada from Afghanistan, he went professional 2016 with no amateur record. He did have one fight in LFA prior to this opportunity. He won that fight. LFA is a very good promotion. His last opponent was against James Wilson, 2022 this year. Decision win. Wilson is 4-1 overall. It was a good fight. I mean, he went the full distance. You see James Wilson gets a lot of damage on his face. It happens because Wilson keeps taking down Hassanzada. He takes him down a bunch of times in the fight. He's got top control, but then from the bottom, Ahmed is landing elbows. He's landing shots. And so he doesn't get back up from the ground. I don't like that. But he did land some nasty elbows that did some damage on his opponent's face. Gets a decision win. Could have actually got a loss in that fight. His prior fight, Rashid Kumayev. 2021, last year, round two, rear Nikki choke win. A lot like the prior fight we just talked about, James Wilson, he gets taken down repeatedly. He's not good at take down defense. That's one thing he's not good at. And also not great at getting back up. He gets taken down again in this fight early on in round one. He doesn't get back up, goes to the corner. We come out to round two. Rashid Chumayev or Kumayev, whatever, is now, he's wearing down. Gives up his back and James Wilson goes in there and finishes him off. Now, what's to like about Ahmed Suwali Hassanzada? He can do a good job off his back. I don't encourage him being there. But if he's on his back, sharp elbows, stays busy, he's not going to be an easy, basically, target off his back. He has cardio to be effective for the entire fight. I do love that. Excellent cardio, very long, lean body. He's also got very good submission offense. Of his eight wins, four of those are by submission. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Hassanzada? Number one, takedown defense is bad. If he fights anyone who wants to get him down, it's not going to be difficult. He doesn't defend takedowns very well. And he compounds that by then not trying to get up. Like, he's just like, I'll work for my back. It's a terrible idea. And just like his opponent, they have not faced good enough competition where we could say, oh, it's this guy or that guy. Or you can kind of cross-check. And we know they fought for good promotions and they had wins in those promotions. But that's the edge of what we know about their topology and their strength of schedule. In conclusion, I like Nazim Sadyakov to win via decision. He's going to put on a wrestling clinic, I believe, get some top control. Sadyakov, he's got a good ground game up against a guy who's got a bad ground game, but a guy who's durable. So I do see if going the full distance, the money line is not great. But as you talk through this fight and we, we go through the measurables and the, the pros and the cons, you can see why at least Vegas has Nazim favored. That makes sense. Minus 275. I mean, come on, man. Give us a chance. Like, give, give me a chance, dude think you're going to have to look at the money line and just realize there's limitations here. If the props come out and they become available in the book you use, look at the fight starting round three, the fight going over two and a half, the fight going the distance. I see these guys very evenly matched. We've already drilled it home, but for Hassan Zada, he is functional on the ground. He will stay on his back. He will work. He won't be easy to finish there, but that plays into the game plan for Nazim, who's going to want to have top control. Now, last point is, do we get a contract for top control for three rounds? We did our breakdown last week. 
we had the chance to also do a write-up for PredictionStrike.com. I'll put a link for that website down below. PredictionStrike.com has an awesome platform, a lot like Robinhood. You can invest in athletes. Baseball, basketball, football, and mixed martial arts are the only sports they cover now. You buy stock, you buy shares. It's pretty cool. And so we did a write-up for them. We went through the values of the athletes and their stock prices and IPO dates. It was really cool. The point of that discussion was we talked about the heavyweights. Heavyweights are like in their own class because there's such a lack of them. When it comes to contracts, it's a whole different thing. So in this fight, if Nazim gets a win by decision, unfortunately, he may not get a contract. Then again, I don't know what the depth is in this division. I'm assuming it's pretty deep division. So you're going to need to finish here. Both guys are going to have to realize that. On the flip side, remember, this is a pro fight. They're very young, 26 or whatever, 27. A win is also important. Maybe get an invitation later on. Maybe get a win now. Dana calls you up in a few months, invites you. A loss is the worst case scenario. Second best case scenario besides getting a finish would be just getting a win. That is also important. So I'm going to get Nazim Sajikov on my ticket as a parlay piece by a victory via decision. The prop bet's not sure what I'm play. I might play a few. You can track us on Twitter and also track us on betemmin.tips. That link is down below. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Share our content. Send it to your buddies if they like the American Tennis Series. Anyway, guys, that's a breakdown for the first fight. A little long-winded. My apologies. Let's keep it going. Here we go. All right, moving up the car. We have a Bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between two female fighters. Haley Cohen, who goes by All Hail, like All Hail the Prince or All Hail the Queen in this case, versus Claudia Leity, I'm probably saying that last name incorrectly. Claudia is from Brazil, 7-2 overall, 4 won her last five fights. She's from specifically Santa Catarina, Brazil, 25 years old, 5'6 in height with a 66.1-inch reach, giving up about a 3-inch reach disadvantage and about 2 inches in height. And for Claudia, she trains out of Astra Fight Team. As for Haley Cohen, 6-2 overall, about the same amount of experience, also 4 won her last five fights. From Waco, Texas, 30 years old, 5'8 in height with a 69.3-inch reach, and she trains out of Blitz Sports MMA. As for the public, on Tapology, Cohen is the favorite, getting 67% of the votes. 33% coming in for the Brazilian. I am on the Brazilian. I do like Claudia in this matchup. I'm going to go through their background, explain to you why. There's some plus money involved here if you agree with me and you agree with the breakdown. I think many of the cappers out there will choose Cohen. I understand why. She's marketable, has an athletic background, whatnot. Older, so you might think she's got some more life experience, right? But she also has been fighting better promotion. In LFA, so she's actually fought some better competition. With all that said, I'm still staying with the Brazilian. Let's talk about the background of these two fighters. Let's look here first at Haley Cohen. So she's from Texas, Waco, Texas. She ends up going to the University of Baylor, and Baylor University is also in Waco, Texas. So she didn't move far from home when she went to college. Grew up as a gymnast, so like most of her younger years, competitive gymnast, traveling, doing all that. When she goes to college, she joins the tumbling and acrobatic team. They do have scholarships, I believe. It's not cheerleading, okay? It's not gymnastics. It's acrobatics and tumbling. She was an All-American, and so for technical reasons, she was an NCAA Division I All-American athlete. After college decides, you know what? I want to still keep competing. I want to stay active. She did an interview where she said, what am I going to do with all this athleticism? What do I do with myself? And she goes into a local mixed martial arts gym to start training, falls in love with it. The coaches liked her. She was very athletic. Obviously, flexibility was there, balance, whatever else. This also gets into some of my concerns about her, which I'll talk about more throughout her breakdown, but she went pro in 2018 after going 3-0 as an amateur. She lost her pro debut to Victoria Leonardo. I bring it up because Leonardo's a current UFC fighter, just fought recently and picked up a nice win. And for Haley Cohen, she fought in LFA and Invicta. Those are good promotions prior to this opportunity right here on Dana Wicca Tennis Series. Her last opponent was against Monica Franco. This year, round two rear naked choke win. 
That was in Invicta, Invicta FC 45. Franco is 2-1 overall as a professional, and she went 3-8 as an amateur. Gives you an idea of Monica Franco. And quite honestly, in that fight, Franco looked scared. Like, she didn't really want to engage. I thought after, like, the first minute or so, Franco felt the, the pressure, the pace, the strength of Haley Cohen, and it was just sort of, like, mentally checking out. So easy win for Haley, and it's not her fault. You know, her opponent didn't want to show up, didn't want to fight. Round two, Rina Kachok. Very nice, solid victory there for Haley Cohen. Her prior fight, the one blemish on her career. And when I say blemish, it's more like a, a huge smudge, okay? Because Kelly Clayton, at that time, I believe Kelly Clayton was like 2-1 and one, or 1-1, one and one, something like that, or 2-0 and oh, or something very inexperienced. And also 38 years old when they fought. So it was an older Kelly Clayton, a fighter who's a middling, lower-level professional fighter. What happens in that fight is Haley Cohen gets submitted in round two via guillotine choke. I would tell you to go watch the fight because there's a lot more to that fight than just the guillotine choke. You see, in round one, Haley Cohen has top control, does a good job wrestling. She maintains top control, but it's at a risk because she's defending submissions the entire time in round one. You know the, the submissions of when someone's going for the arm bar from the back, and the ladies have very flexible hips and legs. They're bringing their legs up, going for the arm bar. This is going on repeatedly in round one. But yeah, Haley Cohen is staying in the fire, staying on top, not heeding the warnings i mean i think i even heard her coaches saying stand up disengage but she said oh, i'm in top position so this goes on for the entire round one but the round one bell rings when she's defending the, the arm bar well guess what happens in round two she gets submitted now it's not just a submission she gets knocked down from her right hand she gets stunned she gets knocked down goes off balance then kind of does a backward roll after she comes up from the roll clearly clayton now is rushing her puts the guillotine choke in now is where you see the rawness of Haley cohen you see where she's very inexperienced because what Haley Cohen does is tries to go for this double leg takedown as she's stunned and trying to get herself together. As she does that, she gives up her neck, but then she literally grabs the thigh of Kelly Clayton and picks her up. Like you, know, you pick somebody up and put their, their legs around your, your waist. She does this and Kelly's like, oh, thank you. I'm going to jump on top of this guillotine. You're lifting me up. Perfect position. And seconds later, Kelly Clayton gets a submission win. It reminded me of her background. She's not a former combat sambo, taekwondo kid from Russia who did, you know, sambo or kid from the Far East who was doing some kind of taekwondo or Muay Thai. She's not Misha Tate who had a high school wrestling background. She was an acrobat. And I'm not trying to talk shit on people who were acrobats. Heck, I was a former gymnast myself. I'm just saying there's a gap there. She was a different type of athlete. Look at Greg Hardy recently. Not just Greg Hardy. A lot of football players who are in a combative sport come over to mixed martial arts. The transition is not there. This fight, when she fought against Kelly Clayton, was the example of that. She's not very good at this yet. She's still learning. She just started doing this, I think she said 2014, 2015 is when she first walked into a mixed martial arts gym. So she's been a pro athlete for four years, 2018, and been doing this for six, seven years total. And I think that shows. I think you see that in fights like that. Now, she also fought Brittany Cloudy, 2020, split decision win back at LFA. Cloudy recently lost a fight in Invicta. Cloudy's got some skills, but she's very inconsistent. And I looked back on the topology and I saw this and I said to myself, yeah, it makes sense. Cohen got a split decision over a fighter who's very inconsistent. Now, what's to like about Cohen? She does fight out of a southpaw stance. That's always an adjustment for a fighter. And on the other side, Claudia Leti, Leti, she does fight out of a traditional right-hand stance. So that'll be an adjustment more for Claudia than it will be for Haley. Haley's also got a good finish rate. Of her six wins, four of those by finish. She's also never been finished before herself. So good durability thus far in her career. She also does a good job of leading the dance. She comes forward. She pushes pace. She's not going to back up, not going to avoid the fight. Both fighters come forward. We should see some action here. Now, what are my concerns for Cohen? 
I talked about some of the concerns of her rawness, right? Needing to make improvements. It makes sense. That's why her striking is a bit raw at times. Her movement's a little bit robotic. It's not as fluid as her opponent in this matchup. As she gets more time in the octagon, as she makes improvements, some of that should get better. Her striking isn't awful, but you'll see it for yourself. It's got limitations. On the flip side, Claudia, even though she's younger, her striking just looks more natural. She's just been doing it longer. And my biggest concern for Haley Cohen is the submission defense. Both of her career losses as a professional have been by submission. One by Renicki Choke and one by Guillotine Choke. Could that be a factor here? Claudia, she's got some finishes in her career. She is Brazilian. It seems like they're just sort of born with that. But when you look at her topology, though, she only has a few submissions. And most of them, her wins are by decision, actually. Now, let's talk about the Brazilian fighter. Claudia. She went pro 2016, no amateur background. She fought in several small promotions in South America. Nothing of the level of what we've seen here from Haley Cohen. So she has fought in Invicta or LFA or CFFC or anything that we could recognize. So smaller level stuff. She fights out of a right-hand stance, as we mentioned before. Her last opponent was Tana Lamonier, 2021, last year, a round five submission win. That was in Chris Cyborg's promotion, actually. She dominates the entire fight. Okay, that's Claudia, that is. All five rounds, top control, position control. You see the wrestling is there. She can wrestle. On the feet, good feints, good movement, pretty good hands. But decided to take the fight to the ground, and she did a great job. In round five, she just simply wears down this poor girl, Tana, and gets a very nice rear naked choke, has the hooks in, flattens her out. Just complete domination. And I got to thinking to myself, she is way better on the ground than Haley Cohen. Now, her prior fight, Priscilla de Souza, that was also last year, 2021 decision win. Souza tried to take her down, like in the first round, and she reverses the takedown, <laughs> immediately takes top position. So once again, if the fight gets into a back and forth in the ground, I think Claudia's going to have a big advantage there. And I believe that Claudia will look to get the fight to the ground. Now, what do I like about Claudia? Four-fight winning streak, very durable, never been finished before, has good head movement, good with her feints. I mentioned already, I think she's better on the floor, on the ground. She's also way better on the feet. She's much more smoother. She could throw combinations, head movement. She's fainting. She's going to pick apart our girl Haley Cohen here. She also appears to be the more natural fighter. So not just on the ground or on the feet, all the aspects of the fight everything, how she takes a punch. I'm going to guesstimate, and I'm just guessing here, that Claudia Lietti, Lietti, even though she's very young at 25, that she's probably been somehow involved with combat sports, jiu-jitsu, striking, or something of that nature for maybe 10 years or more. It's very clear that she's the more the natural fighter. She's also making big improvements. We talk about young fighters. She's only 25. She's the one making the bigger improvements. Now, Haley Cohen is not old by any means, but how old is she? 30 years old. The curve right now for Haley, for Haley Cohen is starting to flatten out. Whereas for Claudia, she's still making big improvements. I like that she's the younger fighter in this matchup. And last but not least, the wrestling and top control. The limited film that I watch on Claudia against lower level opponents, yes. But she's got great top control. When she gets on top, she's going to stay on top. Now, what are my concerns for the young Brazilian fighter? How will she respond in a big situation? This is a big stage. Maybe the toughest opponent as well. Going to America, the bright lights, it's on TV. That could force her to have some nerves, could force her to lose some sleep, could force her to get out of character and make, make some mistakes. She's also fought very low competition. I have to give the edge there to Haley Cohen. Haley Cohen has definitely fought the better fighters. She also can get a little wild at times. Now, what I mean by that is if you look back at the fight against Priscilla de Souza, she wins that fight by decision. But in round one, there's a moment there where she just says, fuck it, I'm going to start trading. And I'm like, whoa, why, why, why are you doing that? It's, it's early in the fight. Why are you doing that? But then I thought about Haley Cohen. I said to myself, yeah, Haley Cohen has not displayed like that kind of knockout power. But it's a little footnote there, and I hope that Claudia doesn't resort to that, at least not early in the fight. If she's losing the fight, late in the fight, hey, do whatever. But this reckless abandon thing about leaving your chin open and just starting to swing seems to be like a young fighter mistake, and I hope she gets rid of that. 
In conclusion, I like Claudia Lefty to win the fight by decision. She's currently sitting on the money line at plus 175. It's not the biggest plus money you're going to find out there, but it's a good plus money spot. I've laid out my case. I've explained to you why I think she is the more natural fighter. I understand Haley Cohen's fought better competition. I get that she's 30 years old, a little bit older, American fighter, but Claudia Liette is going to come in here and give her a run for her money. If I bet the fight straight up, I'm going to take a crack at Claudia Liette. The prop I would look at would be fight starting round three, the fight going over two and a half, the fight going the distance, because they've both been durable, right? They both have not been finished in their career. So I don't think we see a finish here. I think we see a very good fight. And I think we're going to see Claudia Liette come out on top with the win. That's my breakdown, guys. Good look at this fight. Let me know what you guys think. Leave some comments, some suggestions. Should I be choosing the American fighter, Haley Cohen? Am I being anti-American? All right, guys, let's move on. Next fight in the card is going to be a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between Jack Cartwright, who hails from England, versus Jose Johnson, who hails from the United States. Jose Johnson goes by Lobo Salatario, which means the Lonely Wolf. The Lonely Wolf is 14-7 and seven overall. Three and two in his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 150, minus 160, depending upon what books you're using. He's out of Corpus Cove, Texas, 27 years old. Six foot in height with a 74 inch reach, and he trains out of Street Kings. As for Mr. Cartwright, undefeated prospect, 10 and 0. Yes, you got to like that. Very impressive. He's a dog here, though, at plus 125 to plus 130. Again, from England, 28 years old, five foot nine in height with no reach number listed. He does have a stockier build. I'm going to guesstimate that you've got a little bit of a height advantage there for Joseph Johnson or Jose Johnson, about three inches. And I'm going to imagine he's going to have about a two to three inch reach advantage as well. As for Mr. Cartwright, fights out of SBG Manchester. The numbers coming in on Tapology have Cartwright as the favorite. This is surprising. 91% of the votes coming in are for Cartwright, only 9% for Johnson. Yet the money line has Johnson as a slight favorite. I'm on Johnson to win. This is a fight where if you don't take a, a deeper look at the actual prior fights and you just gloss over the numbers and the stats, you can fall into a trap. When I first looked at this, I actually was on Cartwright too. Having never watched him fight before, having not watched any film, I thought, oh, undefeated prospect, UFC likes this, easy to market, from England, and it's not like we don't want you know, more American fighters, but you know the international thing and obviously the whole English fan base, pretty rowdy, very into it. So I, I started looking at that as a possible you know, idea. But the short breakdown for you guys, just before I get into the deep dive in the background, just for the people that need to keep it moving here, I am on Jose Johnson to win the fight. And specifically because he's fought better opponents, has had very good experience, has held his own with some of those fighters. And I believe at his best has a lot of measurable advantages in this matchup, like more quickness, uh, the better wrestler, more explosive, more powerful, and even fighter IQ. I think he's got a lot of advantages in this matchup. So I do like Jose Johnson here. I like him to finish the fight within two to three rounds by a TKO. Now, looking at the actual backgrounds in these two fighters, let's talk first about Mr. Jose Johnson. Okay, so he had a very extensive and interesting amateur background. Looking at his amateur record, I wasn't sure if I was happy or not happy. I kind of came away looking at, like, you know when a dog looks at someone like this? That's how I looked at it. I was like, hmm, 37 amateur fights. Some guys fight seven fights, four fights, you know, it was 37 amateur bouts. I mean, wow, he really wanted to get himself ready to be a pro. He did that over the course of three years, mind you. Uh, yeah, do the math. From 2013 to 2016, he fought almost 40 fights. So he was very active. Granted, those amateur bouts, there's, there's shin pads at times. They're shorter rounds, or sometimes it's only two rounds. You get the point. But still very active as an amateur fighter. He began his amateur career 0-4. I don't think that defines who he is now as a fighter. 
that he's evolved quite a bit, but it gives you an idea of how far he has come. <laughs> okay, so 0-4 to start off his amateur career. He finished his amateur career with a 24-13 and record. Again, you're kind of like glass full, glass half empty. That means he had a lot of experience as an amateur. That's good. It means he had an above 500 winning percentage, but it also means 13 times he lost as an amateur. He had losses as an amateur, though, to Carlos Hernandez, who's currently in the UFC, and Charles Johnson, who's now in the UFC. And he lost to Charles Johnson twice as an amateur. So at least that's three losses right there as an amateur. You could say, okay, you give him a pass on those. He went pro 2016. He began his pro career kind of like the amateur career. He started off with a few losses in a row. And the first two fights, the, the guys that he actually fought, their combined record was 14 and 14. So he begins his, he begins his pro career 0 and 2. And the first two guys he fought were like 500 level fighters. Again, you don't love how he started his career, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt having made some big improvements. This will be the second time he's on Dana White Contender Series. He was on Dana White Contender Series two years ago, 2020. He won the fight, but it was by decision, did not get a contract. Still, quality win. It's on his topology. He most recently fought in Fury FC, where he picked up back-to-back -back wins. I think he's 2-1 in Fury FC after he took the... Not lost, but he won Dana White Contender Series 2020. From there, went and fought three fights in Fury FC, went 2-1. He fights out of a very tall, orthodox, or right-handed boxing stance. That could be a problem against someone who attacks their lower leg or a, a very good wrestler, though his takedown defense is pretty good. But his stance is very tall, traditional boxing stance. Now, some of his recent opponents. He fought Mana Martinez, round one KO loss. That was in Fury FC 46, 2021, a year ago. Mana Martinez, if you recognize the name, he is currently in the UFC. Not bad against a UFC level, opponent to lose. The round one knockout, you don't love that. We're going to talk more about the durability concerns I have here for Jose Johnson. Another opponent, Ronnie Lawrence. Okay, Ronnie Lawrence, 2020, decision loss. And that was on Dana White Contender Series. Now, wait a second. Didn't I just say he won on Dana White Contender Series? Hold on a second. Let me backtrack here. Okay, correction. He fought on Dana White Contender Series 2020, and he lost that match by decision against Ronnie Lawrence. And that's obviously why he didn't get the contract. Um, I don't recall if Ronnie Lawrence got the contract at that time or if he was signed later on, but uh, yeah, correction on that. Another opponent to talk about, Dulani Perry. His last fight, that was 2022 this year, a round one, 12-second knockout. Perry was 4-2. Now, Perry is 4-2. Not a very experienced fighter. I shared you, uh, I shared with you guys a clip. If you look down below here on YouTube in the description, you're going to see those links as part of our free video library. One of the links is for this fight, and it's just a very simple straight right hand not much you could take from that he's got hands yes but perry is you know very you know not very seasoned put it that way that's a nice way of putting it mo miller 2021 just a year ago a round two submission win miller is seven and two a pretty good prospect he had a decision win on dana white contender series in 2021 so that's a guy with some dana white contender series experience he's also got regional wins in fury fc and lfa the bottom line is Mo Miller is a pretty good fighter, and he beats him in round two by submission. You see some very good grappling from him. He wins round one, takes control of the fight. He's very athletic. He is so evolved in that fight from where he initially started out, you know, losing his first two pro fights, going 0-4 in his first, you know, amateur fights, has made some big improvements. He pushed a heavy pace in that fight. He really got in Mo Miller's face. And if you know Mo Miller, he's very athletic too. But he just overwhelmed Mo Miller and, again, gets a submission win. Very dominant performance. And that's a quality win on his topology. Maybe the most quality win of his career thus far. Now, what's to like about Jose Johnson? He's on a two-fight winning streak. He's got a ton of MMA experience. I believe he's fought the much better competition when you compare these two fighters. He'll be the taller fighter in this matchup. He'll also have a bit of a reach advantage. Very high finish rate. Ten of his 14 wins are by finish. Eight by TKO and two by submission.
He's also a very aggressive fighter. If it comes down to it, the fight being close, he's the one getting into the opponent's face. He's the one forcing his opponent to fight off his back foot. He's also a damn good wrestler. When you first look at him, he's kind of a, a longer, athletic, African-American, chiseled kind of a build. But on the ground, his athleticism, explosiveness, his willingness to not lay on his back, those are all the roots of why he's pretty good in the ground. Now, is he the best BJJ guy? No, he's only got two submission wins of 10 finishes. He's more of a TKO guy. But on the ground, so long as his cardio is intact, he puts that, you know, he puts his BJJ skills on display. Against Miller, you saw that. And Miller is a pretty good grappler. Now, what are my concerns here for Mr. Jose Johnson? He's coming up short against bigger opponents. Now, is this matchup here, Jack Cartwright, a bigger opponent? I don't think so. But against guys that are more notable, against UFC caliber guys or of that pedigree, he tends to come up short. And not just short, like in the case of Mata Martinez, he's got knocked out, right? He's also a bit inconsistent. Look over the course of his entire career, amateur record included, 24 and 13, right? As an amateur, you know, two to one type of rate. So winning two fights, dropping one. That's been his career. He just came off of two back-to-back -back wins. Does he do for a loss? And last but not least, durability concerns. Can he take a punch? How does he lose? He's been finished in four of his seven losses. Three of those have been by submission and one by TKO. What do we take from that? Well, we can conclude that obviously submission defense is a bit of a wrinkle, you know, in his game. Is that a problem here with Jack Cartwright? I don't believe so. Jack Cartwright is a average grappler. He's got some submission wins, but, you know, he's not a submission guru. He's not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, for example. When I say Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he's not like from Brazil, from the Amazon rainforest during, you know, jiu-jitsu since he was a little kid. So those are my concerns for Mr. Jose Johnson. Now, as for Jack Cartwright, he didn't have the 37 amateur fight career that Jose Johnson had. He had four amateur fights. He went 4-0. He went pro 2017. So he's been a pro for about five years. He fought in Cage Warriors for most of his pro career. When I say most, about half. He went 5-0 in Cage Warriors. His most recent opponent, Sylvester Miller. Not Sylvester, Sylvester with a W. That was last year. Matter of fact, a year and a half ago, which kind of raised me, my eyebrow a bit, you know, a young guy like this taking a year and a half between fights, whatever. Miller, 2021, round four, illegal headbutts. This is why you have to watch film. Watch the end of the fight. Just fast forward to the illegal headbutt part. Sylvester was winning every part of that fight. There was no if, ands, or buts. He was taking control on the ground. He wrestled Cartwright at some point, round three or something like that, round two. There's a headbutt on the ground where you've got Sylvester on top, sort of putting pressure on top, burying his head down. It's accidental, but the referee warns him, formal warning. Round four, it happens again. Like there's a warning, there's a point taken. I'm like, I'm not really seeing it though. I'm not seeing this like headbutt, you know? Usually think about a headbutt, it's like a clash of heads or something or someone like flying in with their head like a battering ram and cutting somebody. No one gets cut here. There's no cuts from this illegal headbutt. And after a point's taken, we get to another part of the fourth round. And, you know, Sylvester continues to take down, <laughs> repeatedly taking down Jack Cartwright. Jack Cartwright is getting ragdolled. He is losing every aspect of the fight. And Sylvester's like, I'm going to keep taking him down. And he keeps using, not his head, but like he throws an elbow. He throws elbow, Sylvester's head comes down with it. And it's like getting close. And the referee comes in, stops it and says, that's it. I'm calling it off. A legal head blows. And Jack Cartwright's the winner. Jack Cartwright got so lucky in that fight because he was getting beat. There's no question about it. I do not believe for the life of me that his opponent, so Wester Miller, was trying to headbutt him. I think that he needed to use better discretion there, whether the first one or two or the first point or so, even with the points being had taken, he was going to still win the fight. 
but at some point he needed to be a little more cautious. And with the shorter arms that Sylvester has, as he's throwing down these hammer fists and elbows, his head just like came along with it. Terrible loss there for Sylvester. You can see he was very emotional after the fight. But I ask you to watch the fight because if you look at that fight and look at, for example, a recent fight of Jose Johnson, you're going to notice what I've noticed. Jose Johnson's much faster. Cartwright is a bit slower, not good with the defense. He should have lost that last fight. People are going to see Jack Cartwright's undefeated record, not do any research and say he's undefeated. Dana White, they want this guy. Yeah, I, I get that they may want the guy. And his record looks very good coming into the spot against a guy who's already lost seven times. But Jose Johnson, I would argue that almost every guy that Jose Johnson lost to as a pro would also beat Cartwright too. UFC level type of guys. Let's talk here about Mr. Cartwright, who he's been fighting. He fought Gerardo Fanny, 2020, round one submission win. Fanny is three and three in his last six fights. He fights in Cage Warriors, good promotion, but not the best of fighters. That was a round one submission win. He also fought a guy named Manuel Billick, 2020, decision win. Billick is 15 and seven overall, and he has actually faced some good competition. So those are okay wins. The Miller win, again, shouldn't count. Now, what do I like here about Mr. Cartwright? He does have a very high finish rate. Of his 10 wins, none of those are by finish, five by submission, and four by TKO. The five submissions, remember again that Jose Johnson has been submitted a few times. So if you do like Cartwright and you want to go fishing for a prop that pays out a little better, maybe Cartwright by submission. What also I like about Cartwright, he's displayed a very good chin, very durable, right? Of course, he's never been defeated, he never lost, he's never been finished. Now, what are my concerns for Cartwright? The quality of competition is much lower than Jose Johnson, who he's fought. So it's hard to gauge. I mean, you can start doing analysis and MMA math, whatever. But when you haven't fought very good opponents, it, that's a question mark in itself. It's a blind spot here. We can't answer that question. This will probably be his toughest opponent for Mr. Cartwright. His last fight we mentioned before, he got very lucky or fortunate, however you put it. If the fight had gone to the scorecards at some point, he would have lost the fight. And he hasn't fought in about a year and a half. The last fight for him was in March of 2021, roughly about a year and a half ago. Not sure why. I'm not sure if he was injured, travel issues, whatever else. It's hard for me to think, though, at this age, right? Mr. Cartwright is 28 years old. There's so many promotions, right? There's promotions both across the pond in England. There's promotions in Germany. There's promotions all over the place. Why hasn't he fought in a year and a half? Or maybe he knew this fight was going to be coming and he decided, you know what? Let me take the full, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 months to prepare to be at his best. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. If you know, by the way, drop it down below in the comment section. Drop us uh, some knowledge. In conclusion, we like Johnson to win via TKO, second round or third round. I see Johnson taking over the ground attack. I mean, if you look at that last fight where Cartwright fought Sylvester, I think Jose Johnson's a better wrestler than Sylvester. So I see Jose Johnson taking some top control, forcing some uncomfortable situations on the ground, landing some ground and pounds. I mean, could see a submission as well. I mean, if Jack Cartwright turns his back and it's there. So I like Jose Johnson here. If you don't agree with me, I understand. Undefeated prospect. But the numbers tell me. The numbers suggest that Jose Johnson is the better fighter. Do not get blindsided by that 10-0 record. That's our breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Let's keep it moving. Moving up the card, we've got a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between the Brazilian fighter Claudio Ribeiro versus Ivan Valenzuela from Mexico. You want to say Valenzuela, but it's Valenzuela. Valenzuela goes by Bam Bam. He's 8-1 overall. 5 in his last five fights. This, this, uh, excuse me, this price, uh, this fight is priced at a pick em. We had it at minus 110 for both guys. Now it's moved to plus 105 for Ivan, around minus 120 for Claudio, which leads me to believe that by the time the fight kicks off, we could see Claudio around minus 140 to minus 150. He seems to be the person that most of the casual cappers out there are leaning towards. I'm going on the side of Ivan Valenzuela. I'll give you my case. I'll lay it out for you. But I will say before we get further into this fight, this one's going to be a really close fight. It's going to be the hardest fight to cap. I could even imagine a scenario where the fight goes to decision and they're 
very closely matched, and Dana gives both guys contracts. We get some blood, get some brawling, an exciting fight, but no finish with both guys maybe having their moments. It's just like an idea of what I can see happening. So for Ivan, he's from Mexico City, 29 years old, six foot two in height, one inch taller than Claudio, but no reach number on him. He trains out of Invictus DJO. If I had to guess with the longer arms, I would say Claudio does. Even though he's a one inch shorter fighter, Ivan Valenzuela doesn't look to have the longest arms when you watch him on film, whereas Claudio seems to just have a longer frame. Just, just kind of my guesstimate. I'm, I'm not sure on that. As for Claudio Ribeiro, who's from Brazil, nine and two overall, also five known in his last five fights. As we said before, a pick and price here around minus one ten to minus one twenty. El Sao Paulo, Brazil, thirty years old. We have him at six foot one, so about one inch shorter, and he's out of Brazilian black tie. As for the public votes coming out of Tapology, Valenzuela is the favorite, getting seventy five percent of the votes here, twenty five percent coming in for Ribeiro. Well, that goes against what I speculated before. I, I think by the time the fight comes around, more people will be on Ribeiro. I, I just have this sneaky suspicion. I I do like Valenzuela in this fight, but I like him like I like him with like a ten dollar bet. I like him. I'm not that confident. Now looking at the background of these two fighters for Claudio Ribeiro. As we mentioned before, he's from Brazil. He went pro 2017 with no amateur career. He lost his pro debut via submission in round one. He fought in Thunder Fight and Future MMA prior to this opportunity, which are lower level promotions. I don't recognize the names, so I imagine those are going to be promotions probably in South America and Brazil. So looking at some of his prior opponents, he fought John Gregory 2019 round one TKO win. That was three years ago. I mentioned the fight because we could watch it on film, kind of broke it down. Gregory was very inexperienced at that time, like 2-0 or 1-0. He's only 2-1 overall in his total career, so not much experience. The fight starts out with, like, fireworks, like it's personal. Both guys are going back and forth. They're cracking each other. It is a bit of the way Claudio fights. He doesn't mind getting to the phone booth. He will engage. He's not going to disengage. You're going to have to back away from this guy. He's going to go back and forth with you and swing. That could be a path to him getting an exciting finish in this fight, or it could be the ingredients to having just an exciting fight overall. But that's something he does. And in this fight, it starts out that way. He has some good moments. He cracks Gregory. I mean, Gregory's at the point where he's wobbled. He goes and gets a clinch situation. It stays in a clinch now for, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And then you see Gregory gets a takedown. So I'm thinking, all right, Gregory's going to survive round one, right? He's going to be okay. The fight then gets to the cage. And I'm talking like it gets to the cage from the ground for maybe 10, 15 seconds. And the referee comes over and says, okay, separate. And I'm thinking like, what? There's only like 15 seconds to go in the round. Why is the referee doing this? And they were just on the ground. I don't, I don't get it. Well, you know what ends up happening, right? Mr. Cleto comes in, cracks Gregory a few times, like knocks him down, almost completely out cold, but like complete knockdown, hurt. Referee comes in and calls it. It's like the referee wanted the fight to end in round one. Like, all right, guys, separate. Get back to fighting on the feet. So kind of a weird situation. I feel like the ref controlled the outcome of that fight. A little bit annoying. Now, would Gregory have gone on to lose the fight? Probably anyway. Yeah, Claudio was starting to get at his number, was tagging him, was hurting him. Claudio had one round one for sure. That was the good version of Claudio. Early in the fight, he's fresh, pushing pace, throwing crazy punches, landing good shots. Again, uh, what kind of opponent, what kind of level? Questionable. Another fight we watched was Kavim Felipe, 2018. Split decision loss. If you want to watch an exciting fight where he displays a good chin, goes back and forth, shows a lot of heart, this is a good fight. Mind you, Felipe is 5-5 five and five overall. A guy fighting lower level promotion, 500 level fighter, a guy in Felipe who has a chin and he's durable and he'll fight and put on a good show, but doesn't have much punching power. So that was convenient for Claudio. He can go back and forth with this guy. He could punch him like a punching bag. The guy could take a punch and whenever he punched Claudio back, Claudio can take it. Overall though, it's not the greatest of showings. If you go back and watch it, you'll see there's a lot of holes in the game for Claudio. Nothing happens in the ground the entire time the fight's on the feet. He does bust up. Felipe. Felipe is bleeding like a horror show at some point. 
from that standpoint, I was thinking he maybe would get the win. But Felipe had the moments. He had a little more volume, you know. He And at, at some time in the fight, I thought, Claudio looked tired. And I thought, is this just this fight, you know, a lot of volume, high output, or is this maybe some part of his game? I'm still not sure on that. That's something I'm not, I'm, I haven't really gotten to a conclusion on that. Anyway, he uh, he had a good showing, I guess, from the standpoint that he showed durability. He went the full distance. He was in a, excuse me, bloodbath. And it was a split decision loss, meaning one referee thought he won. Or sorry, one referee. One judge thought he won. Um, but that was his most recent loss, and that was about four years ago. Now, what's to like about the way Mr. Claudio Ribeiro fight? If he gets taken down, which his takedown defense, eh, not so great. But he pops back up. He's very, he's the kind of person where if you take him down, he's like a fish out of water. He starts freaking out, looks to squirm. He gets back up. You love that. I mean, how many fighters do we talk about? They lay him, they just lay down. Like, oh, I'll get back up in a little bit. They wrap their legs around the person on top of him. No, this guy, he, he jumps back to his feet. He does have KO power. And I'm not trying to be funny here about this. But when you throw like complete crazy, no technique shots, yeah, like just go on YouTube and look up some street fights. That's how this man is tossing his blows. When it comes to that technique, if you land something in this weight class with the kind of power that he has naturally, yeah, he's going to hurt someone. That is going to be something that for 15 minutes, uh, Valenzuela is going to have to manage that. Now, Valenzuela can make the fight close, get the fight to the ground against the fence, use some type of clinch maneuvers or technique to keep himself away from this power. It would be a good idea. Um, because this guy does swing with power, and if he connects, he's going to hurt somebody. He'll do that for all three rounds. He'll start the fight that way. He'll end the fight that way. And last but not least, the thing that I like about Mr. Ribeiro is he could take a punch. You know, you, we saw that in his fight against Felipe. He could take a punch. He'll go the full distance against Gregory, who, yes, not much experience, but he could take some of those punches, did a good job, showed me that he's got a chin. Now, what are my concerns for Ribeiro? Well, number one, he's fought very little of a competition. Okay, so when you're watching these fights and you see those finishes or those wins, you got to put that into context. Like some of these guys are people that are only fighting on regional scenes, very low, low level opponents, put it that way. And that makes sense. We're looking at Dana White contender series. These guys are all low level to some extent. He gets wild. I mentioned the positives of the fact that he gets wild, but there's also negatives, right? If you're getting in out of your sort of your technique and you're throwing wild punches and your face is wild, wide open, you're open for counters, open to get taken down, just opens up Pandora's box of things that could happen to you against a more skilled opponent. But we put that into context, a more skilled opponent. Is Ivan Valenzuela a more skilled opponent? I'm not so sure, but he will have his moments to take at least advantage of that. So if Ivan wants to do some wrestling, for example, there could be some opportunities there because Ribeiro does get off balance with his shots. His guard is open. And what I mean by that is when he stands up like his hands, his hands are never closed. He's never actually protecting his, his actual face. It's this very wide, relaxed, almost karate-like of stance, similar to like the Stephen Thompson to the world where they have it, their hands lower, but he his are like more up here. And it's a little confusing because if someone just kicks him in the chest or stomach, that's open. If someone punches him right down the pipe, that's, that's open. If someone just throws a hook around the side of his arm, that's open. What does this lead to? His stand-up defense is not very good. He's very hittable on the feet. I would imagine in this fight, you know, it's going to be easy for his opponent to land any kind of volume that he wants to land on the, on the feet, which means like, for example, just a good old fashioned jab. If Ivan comes out and just commits to a jab, it should be there. And that's because of the way Ribeiro stands. He doesn't block low leg kicks either. Okay. The way he stands is very heavy. It's that prototypical heavy Brazilian stance, heavy in the front leg. If you invest in low leg kicks, it should be there. His footwork is not great. Doesn't shuffle his feet very much. I'm not suggesting it's because of cardio. It's just the way he fights. He doesn't use his feet very well. He doesn't circle very much. He looks at just stand and bang with you. And that's just his fighting style. 
He's also shown to me signs of fatigue. I'm not sure it's a quote unquote cardio issue. It's just that towards the end of rounds, like it's round one, round two, obviously round three, towards the end of rounds, if he's forced to go and fight at a high pace, and I'm not sure Ivan could do that in this fight, but if Ivan could force him to, you know, go at a higher pace, I could see end of round one, round two, round three, him slowing down a bit, and there should be some windows of opportunity there for Ivan to maybe get a takedown, finish the round on a high note, steal the round, quote unquote. Now, as for Ivan Valenzuela, Fighting out of a traditional right-handed stance, and I believe also Ribeiro's also right-handed, so we have two right-handed fighters. Ivan went pro 2018, no amateur record. He fought in Lux Fight League prior to this opportunity. That's a smaller promotion, but a good promotion. Very well known for, I guess, the regional scenes down South America, and he fought some good opponents in that scene, decent opponents. His last fight I want to talk about is Ricardo Centeno, 2021, last year, round one KO win. It was close. The fight started off, both guys are pretty even. Next thing you know, he knocks this dude out. And all I can say is I didn't see it coming. Centeno is not, again, not a great opponent, but, you know, kind of low level. But you see in that moment that if Ivan can get his hands on a guy who's middling average guy, he'll knock him out, you know. And sometimes when you see a fighter fight against low level opponents, all you ask for is can you just take the trash out? Can you get it done early? Can you get a finish? It's when they fight opponents that are low level and it goes to decision or like it's a late th third round finish. If you've got your guy in front of you, you're much better than him. Finish him up. Don't play with your food. So in this case right here, round one finish, you like that. Prior fight, Brandon Kessler, 2021, also a round one KO finish. Looking at the recent fights of Ivan Valenzuela, you're going to notice that. A lot of early finishes, which again, fighting guys at a lower level, but he's doing his job. Now let's go back to 2019, three years ago. He fought Enrique Ferreira or Ferreira. I'm not sure how you pronounce this last name. 2019, it was a very close fight, all throughout close fight. He loses the fight ultimately because he gets wrestled to the ground. He cannot get back up. And it's funny because it reminds me of his opponent here, Ribeiro. Ribeiro suffers from the same thing. If you take them down, they don't get back up. Neither one of them is amazing at takedown defense, and they're not really good at getting back up. So he lost that fight against Enrique because of that. It was a close fight. There were some good moments for both fighters, but ultimately also showed some poor fighter IQ. You get taken down like in round one or round two. Okay. By the time round three comes around, you're all, it's like no holes barred. You cannot let yourself get taken down unless you can get back up, which again, you have not gotten back up before. If it happens in one round, again, you know, happens maybe two rounds, okay. You cannot go a three round fight and not have to at least question Ivan's fighter IQ when he's getting taken down all throughout the fight and not getting back up. Now, what do I like about Ivan's game? He will go for the kill. If he knows you're hurt, if he knows his opponent's, you know, cardio is depleting, he will go after it. I can see that scenario. Ribeiro has shown some chinks in the armor when it comes to cardio. Maybe he has a cardio dip. I see Vines one coming in, jumps on top of him. Not necessarily get to finish, but at least pressures the pace. He's also in a five-fight winning streak. Granted, the opponents are okay. He hasn't lost a fight in three years, though. It's a winning streak. You do like that. Winning is a habit. He has never been finished before, so you like that as well. Showed signs of good durability. Has nice takedown offense using body locks. If he were to get a body lock here against Ribeiro, I could see him trying to drag the fight to the ground. And if I'm coaching him, I would highly advise him to try to do it because if either one of these guys got takedown in this fight and got top control, good top control position, they're going to keep the opponent down. Those two guys do not get back up. So hopefully he can get a body lock here and actually execute a takedown. But in, on watching film of him, he likes to get takedowns through using the body lock, dragging the opponent, tripping them. That seems to be his most popular fashion to getting the fight to the ground. He looks to get the fight to the ground and also then gets a fight right to the back. After, after he gets the fight to the ground, his first move is getting back control. Very good moves. And after the fight gets to the ground, the first thing he likes to do is get back control. From there, he'll try to get some submissions, look to get some strikes. Um, in this match, 
in this match, I'm not sure that'll be available to him, but if he does get the fight to the ground, you will look to see him get back control right away. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Valenzuela? Limited head movement. On the feet, here's where it could be a problem. Ribeiro throws steam, right? We talked about this a lot, and a lot of volume. I think Ribeiro will probably have more volume on the feet, especially first half of the round, maybe first half of this fight. I can see more volume from Ribeiro. And if Valenzuela doesn't move his head, we can see cuts opening up early on or just him getting stung. So he's got to invest in better head movement. His footwork... Kind of like Ribeiro, doesn't move his foot, foot very well, doesn't move his feet very well, stays in the pocket too long, doesn't get out of range. We'll have to pay attention to that because if he stays in range too long with Ribeiro again, he's going to get cracked. He stands kind of heavy on his feet too. If either guy decides to invest in a lower leg kick, it would be beneficial to them because their, their opponents both do not check leg kicks and they don't move their legs very well. He got dominated on the ground against Ferreira. We watched that film. We talked about that film. So you see in that moment, he cannot defend takedowns and he can got, not get back up. We watched four fights to bring down this film. We watched Venezuela versus Centeno, 2021. Venezuela versus Grandos Ferreira, 2019. Ribeiro versus Gregory, 2019. And Ribeiro versus Felipe, 2018. If you want to watch any one of those four fights as part of our free video library, just look down below here on YouTube. You'll see those four links available as part of our free video library. In conclusion, boys and girls, I'm going to go with Ivan Valenzuela to pick up the fight via an exciting back-and-forth brawl. Via decision, though. I see these guys having both their moments. I see both guys getting on their verge of hurt maybe, getting stunned, so showing signs of fatigue, get a little bit of blood, and a brawl ensues, and we have both guys go to decision, close decision, it goes to Ivan, he gets to win. In the long term, I can see Dana signing both guys. He likes gritty fighters. He just signed Shannon Ross, what, a week, or not even a week after the show was over for week two, not over, but after the week two episode was over, he ends up shining, signing Shannon Ross because he liked the, you know, just the output, the way he fought. I see him doing that with both these guys. If they put on a good show, Goes back and forth. And I think their their fighting styles lend to that, especially Ribeiro. He's a brawler. He doesn't mind taking one to give one or two or maybe taking three or four to give one. He believes in his power. He'll live and die by it. So if the fight goes his way, it's going to be in the phone with Booth back and forth. For Valenzuela, if he doesn't dominate the fight in the ground one round one, round two, doesn't have a significant lead, he may be forced to fight that style. Or if he's taking from the standpoint, I need a finish to get the contract. If he goes into the mode and goes in there with Ribeiro, Ribeiro is the perfect dancing partner for that because he's going to look to go in there and bang. So for the people who like Ribeiro, Ribeiro by TKO, I see it. It's a good prop to consider. But I'm going to side with Ivan Valenzuela. I see him being a little more sound. Ribeiro gets a little crazy at times. So I'm going to go with Ivan Valenzuela. I'm picking him to win the fight by decision. That's your breakdown, guys. And we're up to the last fight on the card, a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between Thomas Paul, who goes by Juggernaut, hails from England, and Esteban Rebovics, who goes by El Gringo, he hails from Argentina. El Gringo, that means uh, like white boy or white person. Esteban's got lighter skin, but uh, I'm not really sure why he would carry that nickname. Anyway, Mr. Rebovics is 10-0 overall, undefeated, currently on a nice winning streak. A big favorite here, and this money line, it's got me really confused. I, I would have expected when I saw the money line at first, I thought, okay, this Esteban Rebovics must be much better than Thomas Paul. So I saw the money line first, then watched the film, did the tape study, looked at the stats. I don't get it. I, I see where he could be favored. I just don't see why he would be favored at minus 350-ish or minus 300-ish. We'll talk more about that. From my betting perspective, I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to take a stab at Thomas Paul. I am not going to be part Laying Esteban Robovics. I think that's a bit of a trap. The undefeated record is impressive. He's got some nice measurables, pretty good fighter. But as we talk about this breakdown, I hopefully I'll lay out the case for you as to why you might want to take a, a dog play here on Thomas Paul. Back to Esteban Robovics, 26 years old, very young, 5'10 in height from Argentina. I think we mentioned that already. He trains out of Alpha Team, not Alpha Male, 
Alpha Team, a different gym. As for Thomas Paul, who goes by Juggernaut, 11-3 overall. Very good record. 4-1 in his last five fights. A big underdog here, plus 285, plus 250, depending on what book you have. Again, based out of England, 27 years old in 10 months, so also about to be, oh, 28. About to be two years older than Esteban. Well, two-year age difference, no big deal. We don't have a height number here on Thomas Paul, but he is a bit of a shorter wrestler body type. I imagine he'll give up an inch or two in height. Reach-wise, Esteban doesn't look to have the longest arms either on film, but I imagine he'll have maybe a little bit of a reach advantage there as well over Thomas Paul. As for Mr. Paul, he trains out of Team Underground MMA and also BA Army. The votes on Tapology are coming in on the side of Robovix. 86% of the votes coming in for Robovix, only 14% for Paul. I mean, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. I, I watched the film of these guys. I don't see it. But uh, the public's on the side of Robovix. Mayan likes him as well, but I guess I'm a contrarian here. I'm going to pick Thomas Paul to get upset here. Now, on the background of these two fighters, Thomas Paul, 2-0 amateur record. He fought one boxing match and one MMA match. He went professional in 2015, fought mostly in smaller regional promotions in England. He's coming to this fight on a three-fight winning streak. He's deaf, actually, which I don't think it's a problem. I think it can be an advantage at times where you don't you can block out the noise, block out you know your opponent, block out the crowd. The only hiccup would be if the coaches are trying to tell you something from the corner, like they can't give you sign language, you can't look at them per se, like yelling out like, get a takedown or whatever, that he can't hear you. <laughs> he called out Dana White, I guess last year in the UFC saying like, give me my shot, you know, I deserve to be up there. I guess he called out Conor McGregor. Well, now he has his opportunity. His prior opponents, he fought Perry Andre Godwin, or Goodwin, his last fight, 2022 this year, round one KO win. Goodwin is four and five overall. It's a short fight, it's a quick knockout. Initially, Goodwin is doing a pretty good job. He's like very active. He looks serviceable. And then he actually clips Thomas Paul. Thomas Paul has Bambi legs for a second. That was early in the fight. Does recover. Perry Andre Goodwin had no business being in there with a guy like Thomas Paul. His record shows that. And he got starched. It was a very impressive knockout. A knockout that's worth looking it up. And if you want to watch that fight, as you know, we have a free video library here. I mean, Fight Club. Look down below in our description. You're going to see that link available for that fight. A prior fight to talk about, Mario Said, 2021, last year, a round three TKO win. That's an exciting fight. Paul, if you're rooting for Paul to win this fight, and you may have seen this fight before, that's the reason why you like Paul. It was a tough fight, three rounds, he drops round one and two. Round one and two, he gets wrestled to the ground, cannot get back up. Shows you that the wrestling defense is something he's got to work on. He's got to improve in that area. But then round three, he shows you two things. One, he, he's staying in the fight. He's not going to give up. He's not going to mentally quit. He's still in the fight. Number two, the cardio was on point. So now in round three, he's able to outlast Mario Saeed. Obviously hurts him, gets a TKO, finishes the fight. But he shows you good durability and stays focused and stays in the fight even when he's behind. So a comeback win, pretty impressive. Mario Saeed is 13-6 and six overall. A decent fighter, not an awful fighter. Obviously well above the 500 winning percentage. Now what do I like here about Mr. Paul? By the way, his last name, Paul, is spelled with two L's, so P-A-U-L-L. -L. He throws with a lot of power. He does not back down from a fight. If you want to stand and trade with him, he's like, sign me up. I'll do it. And both guys actually like to fight like that, so I do expect to see some fireworks in this matchup. He has a very nice lower leg kick. He's been pretty durable thus far in his career, but he has been finished three times. He was finished twice by submission and once by TKO. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Thomas Paul? His takedown defense, it's questionable at best, especially if you watch the Saeed fight, where he's getting taken down repeatedly and drops round one and round two. He spent a lot of time on his back in those fights and did not get back up. That's the second part of it. Like, you could be bad at takedown defense, but you can get back up. 
He's bad at both. He doesn't get up, and he also gets taken down with ease. That's a bit of a problem. And also, when it comes to submissions, you know, he has been submitted twice. The ground game is really not his forte, at least not at this point in his career. Now, looking at Esteban, El Gringo Rebovics. He went pro 2015 with no amateur experience. He's fought in Samurai Fight House and FFC prior to this opportunity. Smaller promotions, nothing of the caliber like of LFA or CFFC. His last opponent, Franco Aranda, 2022, this year, round one KO win in 27 seconds. He landed a solid short left hook, put his opponent to sleep right away. It was one punch, and that was it. It speaks volumes to the kind of guy that Franco Aranda is. Not much of an opponent, not much of a fight. A prior fight before that, Jose Zararus. Zararus? Z-A-R-A-U-Z. 2020, round three TKO win. Zararus is 23-9-1, so it wasn't an unexperienced fighter, a guy with a decent record. I went back and watched that fight, and... A lot of things were glaring issues for me. Number one, Esteban is very sloppy. When he wants to get sloppy and get loose and not pay attention to technique, he'll do that with you. And if the fighter he's going against does it with him, he's more prone to fall into that way of fighting. And that's how that fight went. He gets a nice finish late in the fight in round three. Jose was getting tired and Esteban was going forward. It was a quality win on paper, but again, there was some issues with that fight. I suggest you watch it, especially if you're putting Esteban into a parlay. I'm trying to give you guys as much information I can give you in a short breakdown, but I would always look at some film myself before putting any bets out there. Now, that's the things I like about Esteban, his strong points, very high output, high energy. He's bopping, he's moving, hitting you at weird angles. It would be hard to find a sparring partner to emulate how he fights. It's a bit awkward, but not awkward bad. He's just a guy who's always moving, on the move. And his head movement, it, it's harder to hit him. That's the bottom line. The guy's moving a lot, moving and shaking. He's very athletic. He attacks from odd angles. You don't know if he's going to shoot at you, hit you from down here, over there. Footwork's pretty good. Takedown offense, it's okay. He does get some takedowns every now and then, but for him, he most likely likes to fight on the feet. Now, for my concerns for him, the things he does not do very well, I mentioned before, he gets sloppy. Now, against lower-level competition, no big deal. Get away with it. Against better competition, when you get sloppy on the feet, I'm talking like throwing weird spinning elbows and being off balance. Looking a bit fatigued, but not really just fatigued physically, more mentally fatigued, where you're making these big shots, you're missing them. In the fight against Jose Zaros, you saw that. Like, and they were both going back and forth, and they were both doing this shit. And it was like round two. It wasn't like they were tired in round three. So I don't love the sloppiness of his technique on the feet. He's also got a propensity to get taken down. His takedown defense is not very good either. In this matchup, it shouldn't be an issue. Neither one of these guys is big on takedowns, and especially for Thomas Paul. But again, when it comes to takedown defense, not great. He's also prone to being very off balance. And what I mean by that is he's throwing these big shots, like very high energy shots, like flying knees or whatever, flying overhand rights. You're off balance. You're going to get countered or taken down. Again, not in this fight taken down, I think, so much as Thomas Paul trying to counter him. Thomas Paul throws with some heat. So if he counters him in the right shot, can be lights out. And last but not least for Esteban Robovics, in terms of my concerns for him, is the high energy movement. So he does do some high energy act actions that can deplete your gas tank. I thought in the fight against Jose Zaris, he wins in round three, but showed some level of fatigue there. He wasn't nearly as fresh or as sharp late in the fight. You mix that in with a little bit of you know, bad choices in there, throwing big punches, high energy moves, it could be a recipe for disaster getting finished. So I, I think he needs to be careful about his movements, what he's doing and not doing too explosive movements that would drain his gas tank. In conclusion, you're probably better off just flipping a coin here. I do not think there's an outright winner. Looking at film, they're similar. They both have glaring weaknesses. They're they're young. They're still learning this game. They're still making their, I guess they're still you know, rounding out their game, the kind of fighter they're going to be. So when it comes to a bet, I don't see how you can bet the money line here 
with Esteban Robovics. It just seems to me like a bad choice. Like if someone gave you 10 bucks to bet on this fight and they said, you have to bet on the money line, 10 bucks. You put in 10 bucks on a guy who's minus 350-ish range. I mean, 10 total fights. I don't think that's a great bet, but there's a guy sitting there at plus 250 to plus 280, depending on your book, a lot more return. Maybe don't bet the entire 10 bucks, put like $5 on Thomas Paul. I'm going to put a bet on Thomas Paul. I don't know how I'm going to bet it. I do want to see when the props come out. I think the violence prop is a good spot here, like the fight not going the distance. Whenever that comes out, you're probably good there because we get through like two rounds. I can even still go in the distance, yes, but we probably get through two rounds and then it becomes a war of attrition. And I think Thomas Paul will look for a finish at some point. He will either go out on his sword or he'll get the win by a finish. With Esteban, he's durable. He'll be there. He'll stay the entire course of three rounds. Does he get cracked, get caught off balance, or does he get to Thomas Paul, who in prior fights, his last fight, we talked about it, he got clipped. So my official pick here, I'm taking Thomas Paul at plus 280. It's just about a dog or pass pick, though, because I don't have the world of confidence, but I don't have the confidence in Esteban Robovics either. I'm very curious to hear how cappers talk about this fight. Very curious. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Good luck with this one. Okay, just to summarize our picks here for Dana White Contender Series week number four, starting at the top. We like Thomas Paul, the main event, at plus 280 in the money line. We like Ivan Valenzuela at minus 110. That's a pick and price. Moving down, we like Jose Johnson at minus 140. We like Claudia at plus 175, another dog in the card. And then moving down to the first fight in the card, Nazim Sadyakov at minus 270. Those are our picks to win. The pick that we have the most confident in of these five, Jose Johnson at minus 140. We're getting a good value on the money line. We like him a lot. Breaking down the film seems to have the advantages here against a guy in Jack Cartwright who... 10-0, undefeated, very impressive, but this will be a big step up in competition. Hoji Johnson, the 14-7 record, it can kind of distract you. Like, oh, seven losses, only, you know, 14 wins. He's fought some competition guys in the UFC, so I think he's ready for the opportunity. The two dogs we talked about, Thomas Paul sitting at plus 280 in the main event, and Claudia at plus 175. I do want to admit, these are more like dog or pass plays. I just don't have the confidence on either side. You have Haley Cowan sitting at minus 205, Esteban Robovic at minus 350. That is... Those are naughty lines. Do not get invested in that. These are very new fighters. Granted, we saw last week all the favorites won, but we can't subscribe to that line of thinking. That doesn't happen that way. Heck, look at UFC San Diego. A bunch of favorites lost. You had Coutinho's going down. You had Onama going down. You had Ode Osborne going down. The casual better or someone who's not betting aggressively with mixed martial arts will see Esteban Robovic at minus 350 and immediately toss them into a parlay. I caution you against doing that. If it works out and he wins, then I guess my warning was for no reason. I just think when you have a younger fighters like this, too closely matched. So I do like those two dog plays. How will I bet this card? I'm not sure just yet. The props are not out yet. There's some props I want to look at, especially the main event, Esteban Robovics and Thomas Paul. Did that fight does not go the full distance. We're going to see some fireworks there. To track our bets and what we're doing with this, track us online. We'll send our bets out through Twitter if you're not tracking us on Twitter just yet or Instagram. But we also have our profile on Bet Tips. You can see all of our bets every week for Daniel White Contender Series, UFC, Bellator, whatever else we're betting on with mixed martial arts. It's all up there. You can track our profile. We're sitting negative right now for the year, but we were looking to turn things around. Anyway, guys, that's your breakdown. Good luck with this card. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. And if you have some comments, leave them down below. Let me know what you're thinking. Do you guys like some fighters in this card that I don't like? Do you agree with our dog picks? We'll see you guys soon. Deuces.